Julia Blackburn is a successful writer. Julia describes to Michael Barclay how music has helped her through some of the difficult periods of her life. You can hear the whole programme under Private Passions on BBC Sounds. Julia Blackburn was born into a family dominated by alcoholism, drug addiction, domestic violence, mental instability and suicide. Amazingly, she survived, indeed thrived, as a prolific and wide-ranging writer. The author of novels, poetry, plays and books about historical figures, including Napoleon, Billie Holiday, Goya and the Norfolk artist John Crask. She's also written books about grief, her love of animals and the natural world, and published memoirs, including a moving, indeed jaw-dropping book about her childhood, The Three of Us. Julia Blackburn, can you paint a picture of your childhood with your parents? Your father was the poet Thomas Blackburn, your mother the artist Rosalie de Merrick. A picture. The picture would be, I think it's encapsulated by the word bohemian. That <laughs> 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 um, they, were, they were the sort of both from very repressed backgrounds in their different ways. They discovered Freud and they discovered freedom and they were in the post-war time thing where, um, as the other song goes, anything goes. Um, and they were complicated. My father was prescribed a drug called sodium amytal during the war when he was giving lectures in the fire service. And that increasingly, completely sort of overwhelmed aspects of his mind. And he was also a serious drinker. My mother was my mother. Um, but it was, yes, it was also all out in the open. I think that was it. I mean, the sort of classic is coming back from school and, and my father in the studio with my mother and I walk in in my uniform and sort of short socks and he says, your mother has been false to me. Do you know what that means? And it, you think, I don't quite, but <laughs> I've got a rough idea that it means trouble. When you came to have children of your own, uh, what sort of parent were you? Ah, well, I think so often you try to be different to your parents and then you miss out on other things. It's that it goes sort of, you know, ricocheting down the generations that you're... I was, for instance, terribly unclear about, say, the facts of life because my mother was too keen on the facts of life. Um, and I, I don't know. I loved my children. I love my children. I have two, a daughter who's very musical as well as being a psychotherapist, a son who's a, in the theatre, works in theatre. And I gave them a, a childhood that I hoped was different to my own and I think that they've emerged triumphantly, each in their own way. Um, but I possibly... I don't know. One does one's best. I think animals helped you to survive your childhood. I was a solitary child, and I think that I mistrusted from a very early age, which makes it rather odd to be a writer, I mistrusted the, the meaning of words. They seemed to have many layers of meaning, none of which were quite absolute or clear. And I could much better converse with a cat or a dog and also just in watching I would be able to watch insects or toads or frogs or small creatures which gave me a kind of quiet and when I was about I think I was 11 I was told to go to Harrods and choose a pet and I went to Harrods and had a sort of waffle between a mongoose and a bush baby <laughs> and I chose a bush baby who was an extraordinary companion for the short year of his life 
but he would just sort of whisper in my ear and stay with me as soon as I came home from school and was in my mother's studio in the, when, sort of in the evening time where he would jump along the picture rail and have absolutely no house training so that the whole studio smelt like the lesser mammal house in the zoo. Julia Blackburn, we're going to move to Pergolese's Starbuck Martin now because... Actually, your life does seem so eventful. Uh, and once again, um, this brings back memories of a rather extraordinary moment in your life which could have been potentially devastating, couldn't it? I've, I've sort of carried it with me a long time, this Stabat Mater. I listened to it when my daughter was in labour. It has this compassion and this mixture of voices of somehow that you can be thinking about somebody and the thought is answered, almost like a kind of embrace without any contact. And then the same, only totally different, um, that my son had a, what could have been a fatal accident, but it wasn't. He dived into a pool where there was some, a concrete block that was not mentioned in the, on the sort of little notices and he hit his head. And he just had his second child, who was three months old, I think, and his wife and his daughter and the second child were there by the water, and lots of other people were there too. Um, and he was rushed to hospital, and he had broken a vertebra in his neck. But he was all right, he got through it, and I was phoned up, and I drove, at, I don't know, nine o'clock at night or something to Bristol. And I thought just as I was leaving I would take this with me so I played it all the way through over and over as a kind of um, a, a affirmation of, the, of survival if you like so it has that quality of it in my mind and it's accompanied me with my two children and you've honed in I think on particular artists Emma Kirkby and James Bowman I think that they're two voices together. It's, it's a dialogue that is so moving to hear it each time again. The way that they, they answer and merge, answer and merge, question and reply. It's, I suppose the awful word is sublime. Not just the wonderful voices of James Bowman and Emma Kirkby in the first movement of Pergolese's Starbuck Mater, but sort of visionary harmony too. It, it does what you don't expect it to do quite often. We heard Christopher Hogwood directing the Academy of Ancient Music. We talked earlier, Julia, about your pretty awful childhood, and I wonder how you feel now when you think about your parents, and especially when you read your father's poetry and look at your mother's paintings. I've, I, my father, although he was chaotic, I'd never, 
I never really had a quarrel with him. He taught me language. He taught me endless poems that I still have rattling around in my head. And he had, he did ask for a kind of, he had, he wrote a wonderful poem for me when I was about 15, which ends up by saying, may chaos though have light within your mind and be of use. And I think that I've carried that as a parental gift, if you like. And I don't have any quarrel with him at all. And with my mother, in that miraculous way, that once a quarrel is settled, it disappears. Um, so that, that, that I feel... Well, I mean, I, had a, I feel that I've had an incredibly blessed life and actually a very contented life, even if sometimes I felt slightly as if I was out on a rather wide ocean, on, you know, in, on a raft... Yes, it is again. It is our virtue needs explaining, not our failings. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to end on a celebratory note indeed, because I understand that you've just got married again. Yes, not not as something at all that I thought would happen. I thought I would trundle off into the into the last chapter on my own. But miraculously and extraordinarily, um I have fallen in love with a wonderful man, Christopher Lucas. And we, yes, that we get on, as we were saying about the nature of getting on. We seem to get on with a harmony, or not seem to, we do get on with a harmony that means that it's it's very, very straightforward to share our lives together, um, walking into the uncertain future. So hand in hand we go into the last stage of the life, the last chapter of the life.
Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today, he looks at some more of the problems Moses faced when leading the people of Israel towards the Promised Land. Come in, come in. I'm just watching my wife make bread. Now, why would I, Moses, watch my wife make bread? You'll see. She puts the required amount of flour, some butter, maybe salt, milk in it, and then mixes it as thoroughly as she can. Then she puts in the leaven, mixes it in completely, and then it must sit for some hours until the loaf has risen. The leaven doesn't rise in one part of the loaf only. The entire loaf is raised. Well, this is how I make sense out of the Lord's seemingly harsh commands. If something evil isn't checked, it grows and affects the entire body, like this loaf of bread. It's easier to fight against an enemy coming against you, but it's quite a different matter to fight an enemy within. Whilst we waited at a town called Shittim, the men began courting the Moabite women, who invited them to worship their god Baal of Peor, and they did. Because of this, the Lord said to me, Take all the leaders of this people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. So I said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. I did as the Lord commanded me, and they were executed publicly. No sooner was this done than an Israelite man had the audacity to bring a Midianite woman to present to his relatives in my sight, even whilst we were weeping for the fallen. Suddenly Phineas, a priest and grandson of Aaron, grabbed a spear, went into their tent, and stabbed both of them with the same thrust of his spear. If this seems extreme to some of you, there's another factor to consider. Because of the treachery of these men following a false god, there was a plague that killed 24,000 people, and it only stopped because of this reaction of Phineas. I thought again of the loaf of bread my wife was making, and the leaven penetrating the entire loaf. The man who was slain was the son of a leader of the tribe of the Simeonites, and the Midianite woman was also from one of their leaders of the tribe. The Lord said to me, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my anger from the Israelites. Since he was as zealous for my honor among them as I am, I did not put an end to them in my zeal. Therefore, tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. The Lord then said to me, Treat the Midianites as enemies and kill them as they treated you as enemies when they deceived you in the Peor incident involving their sister Cosby, the daughter of a Midianite leader, the woman who was killed when the plague came as a result of that incident. Well, after the plague had subsided, Eleazar and I took a census of the people and started teaching them about how they were to inherit the land, but I will admit that at this point I was getting tired of my leadership responsibilities. Not just a spiritual fatigue, but even physically I could see that it was becoming more difficult to lead them. So then the Lord said to me, Go up to this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, 
both of you disobeyed my commands to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the desert of Zin. I said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to me, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Have him stand before Eleazar the priest and in the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out and at his command they will come in. I did as the Lord commanded me. I took Joshua and had him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then I laid my hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through me. So, back to my wife's kitchen. The bread's now out the oven and the aroma fills the entire house and is, as always, crusty and delicious. And the leaven did cause the whole loaf to rise and whilst I'll never fully understand my God's ways, I know enough. If good things are put in, good things come out and grow. But the reverse is also true. This comes from the Holy Bible, from the book of Numbers, chapters 25 and 27. When I fear my fear will hold me fast when the tempter will prevail he will hold me fast I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold he must hold
Philip Noble has many interests, which you can see on his website, bubblestrings.com. In this series on Heart and Soul, he's talking about different aspects of Jesus' ministry. Today, he would like us to be more honest. Last time I was speaking to you, I mentioned haiku poetry and how I'd learned about it from a friend in France, who had suggested I go with him to a conference on haiku poetry in London. Well, I was a bit daunted by that possibility, but thought, if he's with me, it's bound to be okay. However, three weeks before the conference was due to take place, he wrote and said he wasn't going to be able to make it, but he was sure I would get on well. So I turned up in London at the Japanese embassy and found a hundred other people there from all over the world, from Africa, from Europe, from Japan and China and America, all who had done a lot of writing on haiku poetry and writing poems. And the first night, one lady gave a presentation. She was from London. And in one of the poems, she mentioned a temple bell and rain falling on it and not being a sound from the bell. And it sounded a little bit strange and incongruous to me. And on the way out of the meeting, the person next to me said, what did you think of that presentation? I said, well, I didn't like that poem about the temple bell. And this person said, oh, I wrote it. And look, this lady was in a sari. She was an Indian lady. I said, oh, well, um, I think knowing that you're Indian, I would like it a little bit better. She said, no, no. She said, you're right. It's not a very good poem. I was never very pleased with it. But I'm so thankful that you were so honest about it because most people here are not really very honest. They say what they think people want you to hear. And this lady, her name was Anjali Diodar, uh, became a friend. We corresponded for a long time and she came to our church in Scotland and taught course in haiku poetry. Now I'm saying all this about her because what it was was her word to me, I thank you for being honest, which struck a chord in my heart. So often I found you are in a group of people, you maybe find this, and they've read a book and say, what did you think of that book? Have you read it? And the automatic thing is, oh yes, yes, I know that book, when you haven't read it at all. How refreshing when someone says, no, no, I haven't read it. Um, can you tell me about it? That level of deceit can often lead to more and more lies having to take place. And that's when things start going wrong. So my encouragement for you today is to try and keep things simple and keep short accounts with everything. And apologise if you've said anything that wasn't quite true in the last 24 hours, maybe. So to finish with a little prayer from Africa. Lord, you made my life to grow like a tree. But now something has happened. Satan, like a bird, has brought in one branch after another and is building a nest. Tonight, Father, I am throwing out the bird and the nest. That's the way we want it to be. So many things we can't control So many hurts that happen every day So many heartaches that pierce our souls 
So much pain that won't ever go away How do we make it better? How do we make it through? What can we do when there's nothing we can do? We can be kind We can take care of each other We can remember that deep down inside We all need the same thing And maybe we'll find If we are there for each other That together we'll weather whatever tomorrow may bring And it's not enough to talk about it Not enough to sing a song We must walk the walk about it Do our part, give our hearts So someone else can get along We can be 